This is Patrick Henningsen, and you're listening to On the QT at 21wire.tv. Accessing confidential data. Welcome to On the QT at 21wire.tv. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Thank you for joining us for this new fortnightly podcast here at 21wire.tv. On the QT, where I take you for a tour through the headlines and behind the headlines, where we deconstruct and explain some of the most audacious news stories of the day. This week, we'll be looking at the what many might not be aware of, but what is clearly uh, the feud between Hillary Clinton and uh, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, which is playing out in the public sphere. Uh, We're going to deconstruct that. We're going to play a few clips of interviews from Julian Assange recently. And I'm going to show you uh, what is the conflict, uh, where does it come from between these two people? Uh, we've done some some fairly deep research we're going to share with you in this program. So this is a 90-minute podcast. The first 30 minutes of this podcast will be free, uh, and this will be freely available on all our platforms. And after that, on the other side, members to 21wire.tv, subscribers and members will have full access to the premium segment of the show. And this is a new show, so we're we're just finding our feet. Uh, but in order to make this show, this program, and others uh, possible uh, on a network, including Insight and even the Sunday Wire at 21wire.tv, we do rely on your uh, subscriptions. We've just opened up a subscription membership drive uh, just in the last few months. It's going very well. We're very pleased. Uh, a number of people have come on board to help make this possible. And we're going forward over the next 12 months. We've got a, other programs we'd like to launch uh, in addition to these as well. And we're going to need your help to do it. Uh, so after the 30-minute mark, uh, members will be able to hear the full 90-minute uh, podcast uh, here on the QT. Now now for the business at hand. Uh, in the media, recently Julian Assange, uh, founder of WikiLeaks, document dump website, has been in the news. Uh, in recent news, and uh, we've seen uh, leaks coming out of WikiLeaks that have had quite tremendous effect uh, on the U.S. political presidential race, in particular the Democrats and Hillary Clinton. And uh, in July, uh, a tranche of documents were released on WikiLeaks, which resulted in the resignation of five I believe five top uh, Democrat National Convention uh, employees, staffers, including the head, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Now, this should be an indication of how focused, uh, but also how serious the documents coming out of WikiLeaks are. And uh, a lot of people haven't followed this story, so we're going to walk you through uh, some parts of it uh, here today this week. And, uh, you know, normally we have a range of topics on the QT and we sort of uh, hit, a, say, two or three main subjects. 
this week, I think we're going to have to focus on this uh, one in particular uh, because it's so important and so timely. Now, other documents are due to be released uh, in the coming days, per- perhaps tomorrow, uh, perhaps the day after. We're not sure this week. And these could have a profound effect on the U.S. presidential election. Currently, uh, currently, right now, uh, I think uh, Hillary Clinton is, on average, polls uh, leading Donald Trump uh, anywhere between five and a half to six percent nationally. And uh, I believe Donald Trump has gained a point in the last uh, three days this week, after his uh, immigration speech in Phoenix, Arizona, just down the road here, and also his trip to Mexico, uh, had gained a point in the polls over a three-day stretch. And so that gap uh, of five and a half to six percent is tightening, and that's a fact. This is a reality. Uh, so pretty much the media had written Trump off last week, and uh, it was you know the fat lady had sung as far as most of the U.S. mainstream media were concerned. Uh, and now you can see the pundits on TV getting nervous. Uh, you can see them. Even David Axelrod seemed to be lost his composure completely on CNN. You could tell the confident swagger was gone. Uh, they are actually worried uh, right now. And I think one of the things that could turn the momentum in favor of someone like uh, Donald Trump in this pretty much a two-man race, uh, Gary Johnson and uh, someone else by the name of Stein, I think, Jill Stein, I'm not sure, Green Party candidate, picking up one or two points. Gary Johnson's anything between uh, 7.5 to 10%, depending on who you talk to. Uh so I don't think they're going to show or at least be giving a stage at one of the three presidential debates, which are scheduled to begin in September. So it is a two-man, two-person race. Sorry, uh, Hillary Clinton is a woman. So a two-person race, uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. So if WikiLeaks drops a bomb, a wiki bomb, uh, this week or in the next couple of weeks, uh, this could result in a couple of points going towards Donald Trump. Now, once that momentum is achieved, then any, you know, it is anybody's race uh, to win at that point. Uh, It's not necessarily uh, Hillary's to lose anymore. Uh, It is for both of them up for grabs to win. It's very tight, very close race. Um, More than anything, this presidential race in 2016 reminds me so much. Now, a lot of people are probably thinking, oh, you're going to say, uh, 2012, no. Uh, You're going to say 1992, no. This reminds me so much of the 2000 election, but not in the the way that you might think. But we're coming off the back of a two-term Democratic president, Bill Clinton, a very controversial president, and the vice president slipped in, was more or less considered by many a shoo-in, uh, the economy was riding on a high in 1999. The dot-com bubble was inflated enough that enough people had money, and uh, it was money. It was money for nothing, basically. If anybody remembers 1999, um, you just had to have, have a stupid idea, and you could get an IPO in the Silicon Valley, and everybody was just making hay while the sun shined. And that party lasted for a few more years before the bottom fell out, like all. Uh, elaborate Ponzi schemes, the dot-com bubble uh, completely exploded uh, in 2000. So Al Gore was a shoo-in. The Republicans ran George Bush, somehow won the primaries on the GOP side. 
and people, he was the butt of so many jokes. And it reminds me so much of Donald Trump. Uh, George Bush was gaff prone to the extreme, much like Donald Trump. You know, the, the Donald Trump is his own worst enemy. Um, you don't know what's going to come out of his mouth uh, at any turn, and he's still suffering and picking up the pieces for things that he said over a year ago. So George W. Bush in 2000, in the 2000 election, was basically, there was no chance. And in the end, uh, a, a number of clever talking points were circulated, um, which tended to work at the last minute. Uh, one of them was, I, I, I don't know, I think this was probably something out of Karl Rove, uh, his, one of his master jewels of electioneering that someone was heard to be saying George Bush was somebody I could sit down and have a beer with. And that worked uh, at the time. That resonated with quite a few voters, enough to make it close enough that it was a dead heat. So Al Gore just completely blew it. He blew the lead. He was ahead in the polls. Uh, a lot of people expected he was going to walk straight into the White House in 2000. It didn't happen. He won the popular vote and arguably won Florida as well. But um, in classic uh, surrender fashion, Al Gore threw in the towel, if anybody remembers, in 2000 and just completely gave away the presidency. Uh and the U.S. Supreme Court effectively decided to halt uh, the recount. I think this was on the second or third round and uh, overturned a decision by the Florida uh, State Supreme Court. And at the time, George W. Bush's brother Jeb was governor of Florida. The whole thing was a stitch up quite clearly. And, you know, any even a even a, a baboon uh, in the jungles of Borneo would tell you this was a stitch up. Um, but, but that shows you how clever, uh, generally how clever the US media is. They fell for all this sort of spin. And then George W. Bush uh, appointed his cabinet in December. R while, while this arguing back and forth about the recount and the Florida vote tallies was happening, George Bush just went ahead and basically appointed his cabinet. And he was very clever, or they were very clever, or his handlers, Dick Cheney was very clever, whoever was running the, the presidency. Uh, they basically appointed Colin Powell, I believe, I might be wrong, as Secretary of State, and, or, and Condoleezza Rice as uh, national security, uh, head of national security, I'm not sure, or vice versa, but Rice and Powell. So they had a woman, a black woman, and a black man in the cabinet, and I think, I'm not sure the head of the CIA was uh, at the time, but it seemed to be like a rainbow sort of cabinet. And so the public more or less th thought they did a value judgment, the media as well, well, oh, look, it's a diverse cabinet. Uh, we might as well just give it to him. Al Gore throws in the towel and was rewarded with uh, being the king of uh, the environmental movement. That was his payoff, uh, the, car the carpet, Chicago climate exchange, carbon exchange, which ended up collapsing and he cashed out for quite a lot of, many millions of dollars actually, before the carbon market collapsed that Al Gore created. That's another story. We can discuss that another time. But it, this, this election reminds us so much of that. So here we have Hillary Clinton, who essentially is a continuation of a two-term Democratic president, Barack Obama, and in a way, also a continuation of, of Bill Clinton's 
uh, eight years in office, Hillary Clinton. So she was first lady. She wasn't elected to anything in the White House before, but she was more or less, by many people's reports, running the White House while Bill Clinton was was running around doing other things, um, not much governing, uh, but uh, chasing women and interns uh, around the White House and around Washington, who knows where, who knows where else. So that's what the similarities are uncanny. And right now it's, it's Hillary's to lose, much like Al Gore. It was his election to lose. Now it's Hillary's to lose. They have a candidate on the other side that everyone's ridiculing, making fun of, thinking no way, no way Bush would ever be president. I don't know how many people I heard say that. Probably I'd lose count in 2000. And the same with Trump. There's no way he'll be president. And lo and behold, George Bush was elected in 2000. Somehow he he got, got, got in the White House. And this could happen with Trump. Uh, there could be a swing at the last minute. So let's take a look at uh, a recent interview. I'm going to play you. This is, this is a two-part interview. This was by Fox News with Julian Assange. And he's specifically talking about the release, the impending release of these documents by WikiLeaks. And this is very interesting. And we, we learn a little bit. Uh, about how Julian Assange is presenting himself in WikiLeaks. By the way, he's held up uh, in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Uh, he's been detained, per se, for um, a couple of years now, and uh, I, th- I think he's still in the Ecuadorian embassy. Unfortunately, on this Fox clip, Megyn Kelly says from an undisclosed location, so the fact that it, I, I can't believe she didn't know that he was in the Ecuadorian embassy, but but she is a Fox anchor after all, so you have to give them a little bit of, a little bit of extra leeway. They're supposedly uh, call themselves journalists. Um, everyone in the world knows where he is, except um, Megyn Kelly, unfortunately. But beside, put that, put that beside the point. Listen closely. We'll learn a little bit more about this, and I'll play you part two. We'll discuss the part one, and then we'll play you part two after that. Hold on. Here it is, part one. Assange, co-founder and editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks. He only agreed to speak to us from an undisclosed location since he is currently wanted for extradition by Sweden and he's under investigation by the U.S. government, too, for his role in the largest leak of classified documents in U.S. history. Here is part one of that exclusive interview. Watch. Julian, thank you very much for being here. So let's start with the additional information you have regarding Hillary Clinton. When can we expect this information? Well, we're working around the clock. Uh, we have received quite a lot of material, uh, stimulated, of course, by the U.S. election process and by our, our major DNC revelation, which has now led to the resignation of five top officials in the DNC, including Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, the president, the last one, uh, late last week. So, you know, it's a, it's a complex business, what we do. Um, we have to uh, assess the veracity. We have a perfect 10-year record so far uh, in never getting it wrong. Uh, we want to keep that reputation, uh, understand how things should be formatted, what media we should be uh, involved in, what is the best way to stage it out. Uh, do we accumulate everything, assess it, publish it all in one batch, mm-hmm. uh, or do we do several batches? The approach uh, that we've decided to take uh, is that we do several batches. But what, I mean, give us a general sense. I mean, are we, are we going to see it before the November 8th election? 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, in the case of the DNC uh, leaks, for example, uh, we uh, pushed as fast as we could uh, to try and get it in before the uh, Democratic nomination conference because obviously people have a right to understand uh, who it is that they're nominating and what sort of process was involved. And the same is true here uh, for the US electoral process. Uh, people involved in that election uh, have the right to understand uh, who it is they're electing. Now, you've seen it, right? Can, can you tell us how significant you believe it is? I mean, compare its significance to what we saw released by WikiLeaks in July. Well, we, I don't want to scoop ourselves. Uh, we have a lot of pages of material, thousands of pages of material. So, uh, it's, no, I have not read every single page. Uh, we're hard at work uh, in doing that, um, trying to understand, etc. I don't want to give the game away, but um, it's a... A variety of different types of documents from different uh, types of institutions that are associated uh, with the uh, election campaign. Uh, some quite um, unexpected uh, angles that are, that are you know, quite interesting, some, um, some even entertaining. Do you, you know, right now, according to the average of all polls, she's beating Donald Trump by 5.5 uh, points nationwide. She's way ahead of him in most of the swing states, not all. Do you believe the information in your possession could be a game changer in the U.S. election? I think it's significant. Uh, you know, it's, it depends on how it catches fire in the public uh, and in the media. Okay, so that was part one of the Julian Assange interview with Fox. Very interesting. And also, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to note that uh, I believe even this, this uh, news anchor, Megyn Kelly, and, and many most people at Fox, would, cla- would have classed Julian Assange as a, a sort of a criminal-type character, a traitor, guilty of espionage, etc. They throw him right under the bus with Ed Snowden uh, and anybody else, uh, Bradley Manning. Chelsea Manning, whatever, whichever you re- prefer to call it, uh, Bradley Manning, let's say, from the trial. Um, criminals, basically, for uh, leaking information, embarrassing to the U.S. government, etc. And this is essentially what WikiLeaks has done. Now, Fox would have crucified this man, and now they're allowing him to hold court on their network. And this shows you uh, the power of politics uh, because Julian Assange has Hillary Clinton in his crosshairs with this information leak. Uh, All of a sudden now he's given uh, a special platform uh, on a right-wing news network like Fox. Not that that makes a whole lot of difference in the large scheme of things. And I'll tell you why a little bit later in this broadcast. But it is interesting. Now, part two of this uh, interview uh, has a few more details in it. It has to do with a 27-year-old Democratic National Committee staffer named Seth Rich. And uh, Seth Rich was an IT specialist, a computer programmer, uh, definitely in the inner circle, handling the most sensitive uh, IT aspects of, of of the Democratic Party in one of the most important elections uh, in U.S. history, and uh, in July, Seth Rich uh, was shot and killed uh, near his apartment in Washington D.C. 
and uh, he wasn't. Uh, no one took his wallet. His watch wasn't robbed. So quite clearly, this looks like to many people that this was some sort of a hit. Now it's inferred in this conversation I'm about to play you uh, that Seth Rich was somehow connected to the leak of this information to WikiLeaks somehow Uh, because not least of all we'll say because WikiLeaks has offered a reward of $20,000 to any information that might lead uh, to the apprehension or arrest of the killer of Seth Rich, 27-year-old DNC staffer. So this is when the plot gets very thick. Now, before I play you part two, I, I just want to also point out that this interview was heavily edited by Fox. So this goes back to my original point, uh, whether Fox is a right wing or left wing, uh, they are covering for the establishment. Um, something of this magnitude, you would just play the whole interview in full. If this was a real media outlet, if these were real journalists, unfortunately, that's not the case, uh, as we know. So it was heavily edited, this interview. And in fact, they claimed that they were going to put the full interview up on their Facebook page because they said, they were, oh, we've run out of time. You'll hear it at the end of the segment, which I think is interesting. You have one of the biggest scoops of the year in the biggest election contest of the year. And uh, Fox, oh, sorry, Julian, we've run out of time. We'll put the full interview up on our Facebook page, maybe, they said. Now, I've been to Fox's Facebook page. I couldn't find the full interview. Now, maybe I, maybe I wasn't looking or maybe I didn't scroll down uh, or was scrolling too fast. I, I couldn't find the full interview, uh, but I found the edited clips that I'm playing you uh, on a number of platforms. So, But I've already got those. Um, where is the full interview? Why did Fox edit it so heavily for national TV? So it shows you they're, they're, playing, they're still playing politics at the end of the day, even if it means nailing their so-called adversary, um, Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. The Republican-aligned network, Fox, will still... Uh, basically mitigate uh, the damage uh, which Julian Assange would be unleashing in that interview uh, because they represent the state at the end of the day, although a wing of the state, of the political, uh, the two-party state, they still represent the state nonetheless. And this is why they've done that. But uh, we're going to play, we'll play you part two of that interview uh, along with another a very rare UK media interview that Assange did that probably very few people had a chance to, to watch or see, much less analyze. And this is where the real clues are. I'm also going to play that after the part two of the Fox segment here with Megyn Kelly. But we're going to do that on the other side uh, of this broadcast on the QT. Uh, so... If you're a member, uh, go ahead and just uh, click uh, on the link uh, below to get to the full episode. And if you're not a member, do consider subscribing and becoming a member uh, to 21wire.tv and help make this and all of our other programs possible. Uh, So I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. 
We'll see you on the other side. Tune in Sundays at noon Eastern Time or 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the Sunday Wire for three hours of action-packed talk radio on 21stCenturyWire.com and AlternateCurrentRadio.com. This is Patrick Henningsen, and you're listening to On the QT at 21wire.tv. Accessing confidential data. Welcome back to On the QT. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. If you're here on this side, uh, it means that you are a subscriber and a member at 21wire.tv. If you are, I just want to say thank you very much uh, for your support. Thank you for joining us uh, on this part two of this podcast, episode four, On the QT. Now, before the break, before the break, we we played you part one of the Fox Julian Assange interview. Now, we're going to play you part two right now, and uh, this is where the story gets very, very interesting, uh, and they do talk about uh, 27-year-old DNC staffer Seth Rich, who was gunned down in the streets of Washington, D.C., not far from his own house, motive undetermined by the police, nothing was stolen, so this looks like a hit unless you believe in coincidences. However, this looks like it's beyond a coincidence, okay, beyond a coincidence, and it seems like the media is scrambling uh, to cover it up uh, in any way possible, and uh, instead of uh, blaming uh, maybe some political motivation, uh, they're projecting uh, externally, and uh, the media is fairly complicit in this, uh, and I think they're somehow blaming uh, Russia for leak, leaking this information instead of the 27-year-old Seth Rich, who WikiLeaks has placed a, a reward up for any information on who might have killed this young man this summer. This is incredible. This is like a, this is like a crime novel, only it's real. So we'll go ahead and play this, and then afterwards uh, we have a few other choice clips uh, which were aired on a terrestrial channel uh, in the United Kingdom. Not many people saw it because the only people that watch this terrestrial channel are when it's airing The X Factor or Britain's Got Talent or one of these ridiculous uh, reality shows. Um, So when they don't show the stupid reality shows, uh, not many people actually watch this network. Somehow they bagged an exclusive with Assange. Not many people saw it. We recorded it, though. And uh, in that interview is some of the jewels, some of the real answers. So this this. Person, this Julian Assange founder of WikiLeaks, has really put himself out in the media in a number of interesting positions. 
the timing is incredible. And after also this segment and the other one, uh, we're going to get into some of the really dirty aspects of the Clinton crime syndicate, Clinton family crime syndicate. Some people are going to say, well, how can you call it a syndicate? That's kind of a a nasty word. Syndicates are like cartels. Only uh, syndicates are uh, arranged through people and people positioned at certain points and passing money, passing business, uh, passing control of certain parts of business uh, around in sort of a very tight circle of people in a syndicate. And this is exactly what we'll show you. The syndicate includes Wall Street, includes Goldman Sachs Bank, uh, and another number of other key players. And, of course, the Clinton Foundation is just a a vehicle uh, for allowing access to the syndicate. We'll go ahead and play this. Uh, part two of this Fox clip, and then we'll discuss this and show, share some of the other uh, research that we found on this with you afterwards. Here it is. You're receiving more leaks now in the wake of what we saw, you know, here in the U.S. election in July. Yes, every time, of course, that we have a big publication, there's a lot of reportage, and sources see this and they go, "Ah, okay, WikiLeaks works. Oh, uh, I'll, I'll give them my stuff." So, I mean, that's a good thing. Uh, unfortunately, it means that we're, we're drowning, uh, having, having to work around the clock. There was a lot of speculation here in the United States that perhaps Russia was behind the hack of the DNC. I know you're not giving up your source. Uh, but there was, there was also speculation about whether your source was inside the DNC and whether it, it may have potentially been a man named Seth Rich who was killed. He was shot in what police initially said looked like a robbery just last month. You came out in, a, in an interview with Dutch Television and mentioned Seth Rich in a discussion about whistleblowers and the need to protect them. And WikiLeaks, in fact, offered $20,000 for information leading to the arrest of Seth Rich's killer. Why are you so interested in Seth Rich's killer? We're very interested in anything that might be a threat to alleged WikiLeaks sources. The police have offered $25,000. We we have offered $20,000. We're not saying that Seth Rich's death necessarily is connected to our publications. That's something that has to be established. But if there's any question uh, about a source of WikiLeaks uh, being threatened, uh, then uh, people can be assured that this organization uh, will go after uh, anyone who may have been involved in some kind of attempt to coerce or uh, possibly, uh, in this case, uh, kill a potential source. Do you have any suspicions on who may have been behind his murder? We have received a variety of information. Uh, uh, We will be reporting that information to the police. I don't think the information so far is enough to um, start uh, pointing any direct fingers. We don't want to compromise the police investigation. Trying to read you, Julianne, and whether you, yeah, I know you don't want to re- uh, reveal your source, but it certainly sounds like you're suggesting a man who, who leaked information to WikiLeaks was then murdered. If there's someone who's potentially connected to our publications and that person is then murdered in suspicious circumstances, it doesn't necessarily mean that the two are connected, but it is a very serious matter of any, that type of allegation is very serious and it's taken very seriously by us. I want to ask you, because there's a big AP report today saying WikiLeaks releases the private information of, of innocence. Well, it's a nonsense report. 
Uh, it's not by AP. It's not some big team at AP to put this together. It's by a single journalist, Raphael Seta, who has a conflict of interest. Have a look at him on Twitter. Uh, he's been campaigning against us ever since this, um, since this uh, DNC leak. The, um, i got to ask you about the U.S. election. As you point out, you're not an, an American citizen. You're an Australian. You know, you're clearly not rooting for Hillary. But are, are you rooting for Trump? No. I mean, it's... If we have good information on Trump, we publish that. If we have good information on Hillary Democrats, we publish that. Uh, you know, I would like to believe uh, that no organization, no media organization in the United States would not have published uh, the DNC emails. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's true, actually. I think MSNBC wouldn't have published them. I think the New York Times wouldn't have published most of them. Um, and that's sad. It says incredible politicization uh, in this election of the media. Uh, and it is a bit concerning, um, the allegations that uh, by the Clinton campaign that everyone is a Russian agent are really disturbing. Why is that? Well, because bizarrely, Hillary Clinton, the Democrat, has become, has positioned herself now to be the security candidate. Uh, she's powered up with the neocons responsible for the Iraq war, uh, and she's grabbed on to this kind of neo-McCarthyist hysteria. Uh, about Russia and is using that to demonize the Trump campaign. The Trump campaign has all sorts of things wrong with it. Uh, but as far as we can see, be, being Russian agents is not one of them. Um, you know, some people have asked us, um, when will you release information uh, on Donald Trump? Uh, and of course, we are very interested in, in all countries uh, to, under to reveal the truth about different candidates that people can understand. Uh, but it's actually, it's really hard uh, for us to release anything worse than what comes out of Donald Trump's mouth uh, every second day. I mean, it's part of his charismatic appeal that he speaks off the cuff. Uh, but, you know, that's difficult for Donald Trump to overcome a lot of those things, uh, even with a lot of great material coming out by WikiLeaks or other publications. Right. And you, you don't you don't do the hacking. You just do the releasing. And, you know, there have been some leaks about our military, including one back in 2007 that was controversial. You guys released video of an Apache helicopter in Baghdad. And sure enough, mm. the United States had killed two Reuters photographers and some and some children were injured. And WikiLeaks, you know, we saw that thanks to video that you guys released. But the, but the military came out later and said it doesn't show the full context. And they said, RPGs were found. Um, ground troops leader discovered two RPGs, an RPG launcher, a rifle where this group had been clustered. Look, we had a clear result. Uh, the U.S. government had to admit in court under oath uh, in 2013 that not a single person uh, that it could find uh, had been harmed as a result of our disclosures. Do you need to be more careful? Do you, what, what say you to the charge that these releases uh, need to be screened better by WikiLeaks if you're going to do it at all? Well, let, let's back, back step. Uh, so what exactly is the allegation here? The allegation uh, is that WikiLeaks is publishing too much true information. Uh, but private, now, half of private that, confidential uh, information. Half, half, half of that, um, we agree. We publish a lot of information, uh, and it's had a perfect record so far. Julian Assange, the man who may hold the October surprise, or perhaps September. We'll have to wait to find out. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Mika. Well, you just heard Julian Assange talk about the mystery behind the murder of DNC staffer Seth Rich. This just happened on July 9th. So we did some digging on the case, and we will show you what we found right after this break. Don't go away.
Now, that was interesting. That was interesting. As you'll notice, that was a heavily edited uh, uh, interview clip, heavily edited. And that goes to show you that uh, although Fox had an amazing scoop in their hand, uh, they couldn't bear to play that out in full on national TV because, uh, well, let's just say that the interests uh, behind Fox News are the same as those uh, behind the Clinton crime syndicate at the end of the day. So, yes, they love disclosure, but only a certain amount you see, uh, not to harm uh, some of the fortunes and uh, other syndicates uh, that are operating uh, in the United States uh, government media complex. So, so that, was, uh, that was that part of the interview. And we'll point out a few interesting uh, points. Um, but what's more interesting is how they're trying to deflect this hack and uh, sort of blame it on the Russians uh, instead of who it more likely it came from inside the DNC itself. Now, if you look at the what one of the, one of the important parts of this hack was, um, among other things, they showed how the uh, the DNC itself was undermining Bernie Sanders, who was competing against Hillary Clinton in the primaries. Basically, fixed. You know, so you have his own party or the party he's running with basically trying to eliminate him uh, from the primary contest. And that shows you, well, it should show everybody what, a, what an absolute sham uh, of a so-called democracy uh, they have in, we have in the United States. It's, uh, it's beyond a joke uh, that uh, the Democratic Party would cannibalize uh, one of its own very popular in fact, one of the, the, the biggest grassroots success story uh, maybe in Democratic Party history in modern times. Um, it, you know, wasn't riding on the wave of celebrity like uh, Barack Obama, the first black president. No, this was genuine grassroots. This was very much uh, like the Ron Paul uh, surge in, in 2008 and 2012. Uh, so this was something different cannibalized uh, by its own party. So the Republicans are doing the same, uh, trying to undermine Donald Trump, uh, don't see him as a genuine Democrat, or sorry, genuine uh, Republican, as many uh, GOP lifers claim. Not a true conservative. And I think if we got leaks from inside the RNC, we'd probably see uh, much the same, although they just couldn't marshal enough uh, dissent to offset the incredible uh, popularity of Donald Trump. Uh, so there he is the nominee. But back to the DNC hack. So Seth Rich quite possibly is involved in supplying all these uh, leaks to WikiLeaks, ends up dead, basically assassinated in the streets of Washington, D.C., a hit. Please don't have anybody. Uh, amazing, right? But this is what it is. It's like a crime novel. And so there, instead, the, the, the media rushed to say the Russians did it, that somehow the Russians are involved. And this brings us to an interesting point. So this was the, the New York Times front page uh, this week. I believe this came out on the 1st of September. So New York Times headline, How Russia Often Benefits When Julian Assange Reveals the West's Secrets. Mind you, this is this is probably the major newspaper in the United States, and I'm reading it, and it talks a lot about Russian propaganda and so forth, and how uh, Julian Assange is aligned with Russia, 
and Russia and uh, intelligence services. They're, they're saying American officials say Mr. Assange and WikiLeaks probably have no direct ties to the Russian intelligence services, but the agenda of WikiLeaks and the Kremlin have often dovetailed. So th- this is a classic sort of deflect story. Now, you talk about propaganda. The New York Times is probably one of the biggest propaganda oracles uh, on the planet, okay? Um, they literally have a direct line with the U.S. State Department and with the Pentagon and with the CIA. In fact, sometimes you'll you'll find that uh, the State Department will draft articles and uh, then certain authors will put their names on them. Uh, so this has happened in the past. Uh, so... In some cases, you have embeds from from the CIA, from the Pentagon, basically embedded editors within these papers, Washington Post included. Uh, well, obviously, everyone knows CNN is is basically runs effectively PR for the Pentagon and the CIA. Um, you can tell that just by their reporting and how shallow they are and the timing of their talking points and so forth. I mean, this... It, to call, so they want to call uh, RT uh, a Russian propaganda outlet, and they're somehow blaming them for these leaks uh, indirectly. And let, let me just read this paragraph from here. And this is interesting. This is how you know this is straight out of Langley uh, or the State Department. So I, I scroll down here, and they're talking about Julian Assange and the Ecuadorian embassy, and it says, Notably absent from Mr. Assange's analysis, however, was criticism of another world power, Russia, and its president, Vladimir Putin, who has hardly lived up to WikiLeaks' ideal of transparency. Now, I'm going to pause right there. That's the opening sentence of that paragraph. So basically, they're, they're criticizing Assange uh, because he doesn't go after Russia or its president, Vladimir Putin, who, according to this, the, the four people who have attributed their names to this article, which again, is that's when you also know it's a ruse uh, because they, they stick four, three or four authors' names uh, on an article so no one can tell who actually wrote it and are all these people actually uh, real journalists on the New York Times payroll? Uh, I guess so. Did they write it? We don't know. Did the State Department write it? Quite possibly. They have done that before where they supply the text or even the White House will supply the text to the newspaper and then someone will be nominated to put their name on it. Okay, so so they're basically saying because he doesn't criticize Russia, this is somehow suspect. Now, you, you'll see this sort of interesting dialectical uh, argument. This is kind of a sort of a version of a straw man argument. It's quite easy to knock down. Uh, and if you look at... So the, the authors are, are basically proposing here uh, that somehow Russia's role internationally is equal to that of the United States uh, and its multilateral uh, institutions like uh, NATO and the IMF and uh, the World Bank and so forth. So that's not to say that the U.S. doesn't have uh, over 1,300, 1,300 military installations worldwide. Uh, and has a number of many hundreds of thousands of uh, military troops and contractors, uh, millions, in fact, if you add up uh, the corporate sector, uh, deployed globally. 
and you look at areas like the DMZ in Korea that's been continuously occupied now for 70 years and costs billions of dollars a year to run. And you get an idea at that point, Okinawa, the the Persian Gulf, uh, all the black sites right across Eastern Europe, uh, Diego Garcia, Australia, New Zealand. You know, we start adding all this up globally, and uh, you can see the U.S. basically running a military-industrial empire globally, uh, military footprint in 43 African nations, 43 African nations, uh, and, and also huge military facilities throughout Europe, including Germany, uh, Great Britain, uh, Spain, uh, Turkey, uh, and the list goes on and on and on and on, and then through NATO as well. So, and starting undeclared wars of aggression all over the planet, okay? We only have to look at uh, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria in a proxy way, and Yemen in a proxy way through its partners. And, and just, just those alone, and uh, we can get an idea of the, of the absolute global scale of the U.S. empire or the Anglo-American empire or the U.S. NATO empire, which, however you want to refer to it. Um, it doesn't compare. Russia can, is not in the same league. Not, they're, they're, they're not even worth mentioning in the same breath. We're talking about something that's uh, capitalized um, upwards of a trillion dollars in operation per year. Okay, it, 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 there's no comparison. So for for someone to try to equate these two, so here now this is where it gets a little bit erroneous on the New York Times part, and this is pure propaganda. So I'll continue. Uh, Mr. Putin's government has cracked down hard on dissent spying on, jailing, and uh, critics charged uh, as if the United States doesn't do this, hasn't done this, uh, including Bradley Manning, uh, but sometimes assassinating opponents while consolidating control over the news media and Internet. So now he's, a, he's accusing Putin right here in the New York Times front page story of assassinating his opponents. There's no proof offered for this. Uh, nothing. It's literally they're pulling it out of the air and saying he's assassinated his opponents. Uh, if Mr. Assange appreciated the irony of the moment, denouncing censorship in an interview on Russia Today, the Kremlin-controlled English-language propaganda channel, uh, it was not readily apparent. So here the New York, this is a complete hit piece here. So again, they're trying to Part of the, the, the conspiracy theory that Vladimir Putin is behind WikiLeaks, uh, it's behind the DNC hack, all these things. So we've got a dead staffer bled to death on the streets of Washington, D.C., 27-year-old computer genius, and instead they want to blame Russia. Interesting. And, and so RT is an English-language propaganda channel. Well, I'm reading propaganda right off the front page of the New York Times. So I, I, do, do these authors of this article see the irony of this moment? Joe Becker, Stephen Erlanger, and Eric Schmidt, the three authors of this New York Times front page feature that claims that uh, Vladimir Putin assassinates his opponents. Uh, let me say, uh, as a caveat, 
This is interesting. So I've appeared on that network, uh, Russia Today, actually. I've probably done over 100 segments, live segments, uh, and a few recorded ones as well on Crosstalk. Never, not once, have I ever been told what to say. Uh, I've never been censored. I've more or less been able to talk. Now, mind you, they might agree or like what I'm saying because I am critical of... uh, of the sort of United States global hegemony and the uh, the Atlanticist hegemon, I am very critical of that. And the reason is, it's because uh, that's my home country. These are the countries I live in. These are the countries that we pay tax in. Um, so I I don't uh, have any stake uh, in Russia. Not nearly uh, what I do in the United States, for instance, uh, or Europe, Western Europe. So as a journalist, as a, you know, as an accredited journalist, um, that's my job in my country uh, is to hold, uh, speak truth to power and, and hold military adventurism to account and political corruption. And the scale of it is vast. It's huge. It's, it's unbelievable. And some might say it's unparalleled globally. That might be the case. So, again, this is kind of a weak argument by these three amigos at the New York Times. So, here they continue. Now, Mr. Assange and WikiLeaks are back in the spotlight, roiling the geopolitical landscape with new disclosures and a promise of more to come. So, they, the first three paragraphs, which appear on, uh, above the fold on the newsstand in the New York Times, are just absolute hit piece dragging Russia somehow into the hack uh, accusing the Russian president of killing his opponents assassinating is the word they used Uh, so and then they say it's a propaganda outlet and that Assange is a more or less indirectly a propaganda agent of Russia this is the sort of quality of uh, this is what we've come to expect as as journalism uh, from from our mainstream Western outlets and uh, they're just themselves completely outrageous mouthpieces of propaganda for uh, the corporatist Atlanticist uh, cartels who they represent, uh, who give them their marching orders. I, amazing. Who, who could put their name on that? You'd have to be some sort of an agent to have to put, to author your name on a front page story like that. You would have to be working for. Uh, one of the alphabet soup agencies, or you just have no conscience whatsoever. It's not journalism. So, but that's that's the line basically that they're pushing, uh, and it's it's so they're and I've seen this more and more in recent weeks. They're setting up this Hillary versus Russia sort of thing. So now you have uh, whereby the left used to be back in the old days, the good old days when they were real liberals. Um, they used to be sympathetic towards Russia and the Soviet Union, socialism, communism, and uh, that's all changed now. Some of the biggest uh, people who they've positioned in the public against Russia are actually liberals, Democrats, and Hillary Clinton's, of course, leading the charge. Because after all, uh, if you want to rule in the U.S. establishment, you need an enemy, and uh, Russia is one of the biggest potential enemies out there that you can uh position the U.S. against uh, in order to promote uh, a new arms race. And I think it's uh, 
it's beyond debate now. It's it's it should be fairly self-evident that there is a, a new arms race going on right now, um, and part of it is through this artificial, uh, hyped-up uh, conflict uh, that the West and using NATO uh, in order to antagonize Russia to destabilize a country like the Ukraine, for instance, uh, and what the United States government did there, and directly responsible, directly involved uh, in engineering uh, that coup, the overthrow of that elected government, uh, and through their other sort of third sector operators uh, like George Soros and the bevy of NGOs, uh, which he funds and uh, ultimately controls, but uh, U.S. foreign policy working through these NGOs. So that's the state of play. So it's Hillary versus the Russians. And so the, you know, the, left, the left media, left-wing media, will, you know, they'll all accuse uh, Julian Assange of stoking the fire. Right, so stoking somehow stoking the fire of controversy with these uh, incredible leaks. So as if, okay, the the one hundred percent stoking of any tension uh, between the West and Russia is one hundred percent coming uh, from the sort of conspiracy theories, like uh, you know th- they've got a Putin conspiracy theory for just about everything in the mainstream media now. So th- this is where the fire stoking is taking place. It's in the West. Okay, so, and uh, you'll have media people saying Assange is a criminal, and uh, why haven't they indicted him? And that's an interesting question, and here's the answer. Because if they indict Julian Assange, now a lot of people say he, he, he's a journalist, uh, he's, he isn't a journalist, uh, he's an activist, uh, no, he's a he's a spy. Uh, you know, no one. The the media struggle in labeling this man. J- let me put this nice and simple. Okay, Julian Assange is a publisher. And nothing more, nothing less. And if you look at the record of WikiLeaks, um, yeah, they, it could be used as a limited hangout. Absolutely. You know, there there could be uh, stuff supplied to WikiLeaks. Most of it's good. Good information, uh, the veracity uh, passes muster, and it could be easily be peppered with other email tranches and cables that the U.S. government wants to put out. Uh, they want to be out there, for instance. So it's not completely perfect in that respect. Okay, but he's a publisher, and if they indict Julian Assange in the United States, which which they haven't done, uh, then they'd have to indict every newspaper and every journalist in the country, and every publisher, uh, because they would effectively be guilty of, of the same thing. So he's a publisher. He's not a journalist per se. He's a publisher. He publishes things on his website, which is called WikiLeaks. So, you know, Fox, you know, they wouldn't air the full interview. Uh, they claimed to post it on Facebook. I I couldn't find it. It might it might be up there. I I couldn't find it uh, on my glancing through their Facebook page. Uh, maybe it's on the internet somewhere. But uh, but it's interesting. They had an opportunity to air that in full prime time, uh, two nights, three nights actually, and they didn't. And that should tell you something. And uh, MSNBC would do the same. They would edit it and they wouldn't air it if they got that scoop. In fact, they probably wouldn't even allow Julian Assange on because that's so 
heavily politicized uh, to call anybody at, at that network and Fox for that matter, but especially MSNBC, a journalist is laughable. It's laughable. It's become so partisan, uh, these networks in the United States, that they're not doing the country any service, in my opinion, and many others, uh, by the way. And so I'm going I'm, to, let's, let's also, I'm going to share this with you. So, so Julian Assange is, was pro-Brexit, and there's a reason for that. Okay, this is really key here uh, when you're understanding where this man is right now, where he's positioned himself and WikiLeaks on the geopolitical scene. Now, the EU factors into this heavily, heavily. In fact, Julian Assange being uh, incarcerated has everything to do with Brexit uh, and the EU. And you're probably saying, how's that possible? Well, I'm going to share this with you. So this is... uh, Peston, uh, he's a presenter on ITV uh, in the UK, I believe. I'm going to play you this. This is the t- two two segments here. I'm going to I'm going to play you. One is this is Peston talking to Julian Assange on Brexit. So many people did not see this interview. Uh, luckily, we we grabbed it for you. Listen to this. So does that mean, sorry, that you're a Brexit? That you think we should leave? Uh, pretty much, pretty much. I mean, I also have a, there's a, something I've experienced personally, uh, which is seeing uh, this government, uh, the Cameron government, uh, repeatedly uh, use the EU as political cover for its own decision making. It launders things to the EU and then claims that it can't do anything about it. Uh, for example, the EAW, the European Arrest Warrant. Uh, we think here in the United Kingdom that you have a right to a, a fair trial, that that includes evidence, judges, uh, and charges. Uh, but in my case, we don't have any of that. And it's not just me. Many people in the UK have been affected by that. That's a fundamental uh, basis of sovereignty, uh, is random officials in the rest of the European Union uh, can't suddenly force your police to arrest people. Well, Cameron says, in relation to my situation, uh, well, nothing that he can do. It's not the decision of, this, of his government uh, to engage in this uh, extremely expensive siege for the last four years. Rather, he's forced to do it uh, by the EU. But of course, actually, the EAW has been pushed by uh, uh, the former Labour government uh, and this government. And uh, Cameron passes the buck uh, to the EU in that case, also in data, data retention and also for the, the TTIP. So the worst elements coming out of the EU have been actually pushed by governments in the UK. So the UK is bad for the EU, but also the EU is bad for the UK because it permits uh, a lack of democratic accountability in this country by permitting successive governments in this country uh, to simply say, oh, we're forced into doing things uh, because of EU le- legislation, when it is precisely these governments that have been behind that EU legislation in the first place. And you can see that also in relation to immigration. Uh, okay, now, okay, if you look okay, at the figures. Okay, so that was interesting, to say the least. So if Britain stays uh, in Europe, uh, the European arrest warrant stands, uh, and Julian Assange uh, is still in the same conundrum. Uh, in this state of limbo and detention uh, in asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy uh, indefinitely uh, because the United States uh, and Sweden, as far as we can see, are are not budging 
uh, on this situation. But he's so correct about how uh, governments, especially in Britain, will use the EU uh, to, to scapegoat uh, having to be accountable or to basically uh, gloss over any, any sort of difficult policy issues. Uh, so they basically pass the buck to Brussels uh, if they don't want to make a decision on it. It, it, that is fundamentally the problem um, with the EU. And if you talk to people who are smart and educated on uh, this issue, who might have voted for Brexit uh, to leave the EU, this is a fundamental issue. And if you listen to how articulately Julian Assange had uh, explained that, um, I don't. You you won't get any arguments from me. I think he laid it out pretty pretty well. So in his hundred years of solitude, I think you've got a, a person here who's becoming uh, very sort of uh, clear on uh, how, what a sham, uh, A, that party politics are, uh, and B, uh, some of these political constructs and government constructs uh, that are probably some of the most undemocratic uh, on the planet in history, actually. Uh, and how they're being sold and packaged uh, as modern progressive democracies uh, when they're anything but. Now, here's the second part of that segment. This is where it gets even more interesting. Uh, and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts of uh, to share some things with you that you probably haven't heard before. So here, listen to the part two. This is incredibly interesting. It's from the Peston segment on ITV in Britain. Listen to this. It, it, it simply we've got a lot to cover and we haven't got enough, that much time. You mentioned um, Hillary Clinton, who's now the Democratic candidate for the presidency. Um, I, you've been taking an interest, I understand, in the whole issue of the email she sent you're using her private server. Do you have any of the undisclosed emails? Well, taking interest, I think, is putting it mildly. We've published 32,000 uh, of them in some analysis. Mm. Uh, it's... We have upcoming leaks in relation to Hillary Clinton, which yep. is great. We actually have a, WikiLeaks has a very big year at, uh, so, but, some, but some of the, some uh, of the ones that have those, not yet come into the public domain, you are planning yeah, to put out. We have emails related to Hillary, Hillary Clinton, which uh, are pending uh, publication. That is correct. But the, the, what about the FBI the investigation? What, do you, what, what about the FBI yeah. investigation itself? Where do you think that will end up? Well, unfortunately, I think what's going to happen is that the, the FBI is going to go uh, where we've accumulated a lot of material about Hillary Clinton. We could proceed to an indictment, but if Loretta Lynch as the DOJ, uh, head of the DOJ in the United States, appointed by Obama, uh, Loretta Lynch is the person in charge of our case, uh, she's not going to indict uh, Hillary Clinton. That's not possible. That could happen. But the FBI can push for concessions from... Uh, the new Clinton government uh, in exchange for its lack of indictment. But there's, there's very strong material, both in, uh, in the emails and in relation to the Clinton Foundation. For example, we published an email where Hillary Clinton is instructing her staff to remove the classified header of a classified document and send it by non-classified facts. Uh, so that it just requires one more thing, which is to show that the document was actually sent. But she instructed her staff to violate those uh, uh, classification procedures in the United States. Of course, I think personally a lot of these procedures are ridiculous, but Hillary Clinton uh, has been 
uh, pushing to prosecute others, and so is Barack Obama, uh, who violate technically uh, these procedures. Very briefly, I mean, plainly, what you are saying and what you've been publishing hurts Hillary Clinton. Would you prefer Trump to be president? Well, uh, I think tr Trump is a completely unpredictable uh, phenomenon. You, ca you can't predict what he would uh, do in office. You can predict a bit more what the Republican Party would do in office. Uh, from my personal perspective, well, you know, the emails we published show that Hillary Clinton is receiving constant updates about my personal situation. Mm. She has uh, pushed uh, for the prosecution uh, of WikiLeaks, which is still in train. Uh, so we do see her as a bit of a problem uh, for freedom of the press more generally. Uh, in relation to wars, uh, the emails we revealed about her involvement in Libya and statements by Pentagon generals show that Hillary was overriding the Pentagon's reluctance uh, to overthrow uh, Muammar al-Gaddafi because they, would, they predicted that the post-war outcome would be something like what it is, which is ISIS taking over the country. It's Hillary who was the leading champion uh, in office to do that. Uh, she has a, a long history of being a liberal war hawk. Uh, and we, we presume that she's going yep. to proceed. I'm really uh, sorry, Mr. Assange, but I'm being told we're out of time. But it's been a pleasure talking to you and hope to speak to you again. Thank you. Bye -bye. All the best. Thank you. Wow. Wow. So <laughs> that's something else. That's something else. So l l let's point out something just to start here. You know, on July 22nd, 2016, just earlier this year, a UN working group uh, on arbitrary detention uh, basically found, this is after 16 months, by the way, of investigations, um, found that Julian Assange uh, should be uh, released uh, and allowed to go free. And, you know, so Sweden doesn't even recognize um, his asylum claim at the Ecuadorian embassy. Okay, so, and they won't give any guarantee that he won't be shipped off uh, to the United States. I think the tech legal term for that is non-refoulement. Uh, so obviously, uh, the United States and Sweden, who work very close together and are probably in, very much in cahoots, uh, on this Assange issue, um, so he's not going to get uh, any any daylight there. So, but they found him basically innocent. So he hasn't been charged in Sweden, and the United States has been running an investigation now for quite a long time since 2010, an espionage investigation uh, in which him and and both uh, Bradley Manning are the subjects of. Uh, no determinations, no indict. I don't think they've indicted him. So what do we have here? We have this international sort of mafia syndicate uh, who can just go and grab people wherever they want. Now, what's interesting is how did Julian Assange um, get the original arrest in Sweden uh, in 2010? And a lot, of, I mean, there's so much water under the bridge on this story that a lot of people don't actually know or remember. So this was basically, okay, so in Sweden, Assange is not charged with any crime. But, uh, but still, Sweden has inter issued an Interpol red notice and a European arrest warrant. Uh, immediately, at, at the timing of this is uncanny. They did so immediately after WikiLeaks began publishing a cache of 250,000 
U.S. diplomatic cables on the 29th of November, 2010. So such warrants are, are usually issued for persons whose whereabouts are unknown, but in the case of Julian Assange, his whereabouts are very much known. He's held many uh, press conferences and uh, TV interviews from the Ecuadorian embassy in London, so there's there's no need. So, you know, his lawyers were in communication with the Swedish prosecution, uh, and they said he's available to answer any questions uh, through the standard procedures. So this is being treated differently here. This is basically an international stitch-up. Uh, the U.S., Sweden would love to get hold of him, hand him over to the U.S. for a favor or for some exchange of money or some international favor or something. Who knows what, what deal that would be, uh, what would broker that deal to hand over Assange, what would Sweden get in return? Who knows, right? But uh, nonetheless, this is just completely out of the norm uh, in terms of uh, jurisprudence. And originally, they nailed Assange on a, uh, a kind of a trumped-up rape case in Sweden. And this was interesting. So uh, apparently, some might say that they threw the honeypots at uh, Assange as, as they normally do, uh, this is one of the sort of favorite uh, means by which the establishment can uh, uh, undermine and entrap uh, any enemy of the state. Uh, and throughout history, this is, in terms of uh, tradecraft, this is pretty, pretty standard. So he went out on a date, met two women, uh, ended up going back to their place, uh, bada bing, bada boom, and uh, was cooking... Uh, uh, they were cooking breakfast for him, both of them, in, in the morning. And uh, apparently the police somehow, I don't know how this transpired, uh, but uh, they had some offense that he was accused of, of, which in Sweden is called lesser rape. So I guess one of these women complained uh, that he didn't uh, text them afterwards or send a, uh, a thank you note uh, for the great night, the menage a trois. But I'm not making this up. This is this is definitely the case. Uh, so, so anyway, and then the women are on record here as saying that uh, the police, uh, yeah, she said, one of the women said she did not want to accuse Julian Assange of anything, quote, unquote. Uh, it was the police who made up the charges, quote, unquote. Okay, and the other, the other woman tweeted in 2013 that she had never been raped, quote, unquote. Both women's testimonies say that they consented to have sex with Julian Assange. This is how it all got started. So, and, and the senior prosecutor in Sweden already dismissed the rape accusation. Okay. And, uh, and, and it's been confirmed from that prosecutor there were no grounds for accusing Assange on that basis. The third prosecutor, lobbied by a politician, who was running for attorney general at the time, took over this investigation, resurrected the accusations against Assange. That's very interesting. And this is also why there was a huge legal uh, judicial scandal in Sweden at the time uh, this was going on. So it looked like this was the perfect storm. Somehow it all just came into place. And they found a way to basically checkmate the founder of WikiLeaks, uh, through a duffed-up rape charge uh, in Sweden, which they won't let go of, even though there's no charges against him. Isn't that so interesting? 
and they refused to basically interview him like would be normal procedure. So this is a stitch-up of, of high proportions, and most likely this is being run out of, the, out of Washington uh, quite clearly. So miscarriage of justice, yeah, you could say so. But it's much worse than that uh, because this is also, um, this is a classic case of governments colluding to cover up uh, institutional and government corruption, some of which are connected to wars, actually. So this is organized crime, essentially, uh, which we're seeing here. So incredible, you might say. Uh, but that's what exactly what we're looking at. So now, <laughs> incredible, incredible. So let's let's also look at a couple of other things here. Now this is where it gets interesting. Now we have a, the the Clintons. Let's get back to the Clintons. Okay, uh, Assange describes. Uh, I think. Vulgar transatlanticists, I think he's calling, uh, referring to Hillary Clinton. So there's no love lost between those two people. Now, the European arrest warrant, which Sweden is using to claim possession of Julian Assange, um, I believe it's supported by the likes of Hillary Clinton. I might be wrong. I believe she might have pushed for that while she was Secretary of State or supported it. Certainly, uh, she made. Uh, superficial moves to say that uh, the United, she regretted that the U.S. had not signed up for the International Criminal Court, which itself is a sham um, created by the United States, uh, but the U.S. wouldn't sign up to it. Neither did China, uh, Russia, and uh, a few other uh, major powers did not sign up for, in uh, Israel, of course, uh, didn't sign up to the ICC. Most of the other countries, however, were duped into signing up for it, and uh, if you're an African, uh, it's the favorite sort of uh, venue for uh, show trials for supposed African dictators uh, who are mostly working with CIA and Saudi Arabia and places like that. I think they tried to string up the Sudanese uh, president. Uh, Slobodan Milosevic, that was, that was now, we, we find out information this summer that that was probably, a lot, there was a lot of sort of fraudulent uh, show trial activity going on with uh, Slobodan in terms of what actual evidence they had against him for genocide. He ended up uh, supposedly killing himself in his cell. I, uh, highly doubtful myself, but he's probably, you know, who knows. Uh, so it's a kind of a joke, the International Criminal Court. It's a nice idea, I guess, in theory, but it, it is also a prelude to uh, world government, to global government. And, uh, and it's used by the U.S. They, and, and all these NGOs in the U.S. and Britain, there's tons of think tanks and people who work and lobby for and cover the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and, and demand that it tries this person, that person, who are normally uh, convenient en enemies of the, of, the, of the day of the likes of the U.S. So they use the ICC, even though they will never join it. They use it uh, in order to sort of put pressure or on countries who are not uh, reading on the script, per se. So just so you understand how that works. Um, but so, so Hillary said, oh, I regret not joining. It's probably because um, that was a kind of a good thing to say at the time. Uh, if, if she was really serious about it, she would be demanding that the U.S. sign up to it. But of course, she's never done that. So that means that that was just some sort of political cover there. 
Um, maybe it had some connection with uh, her su- possible support of the European arrest warrant and her vendetta and uh, with Julian Assange. Because let's face it, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks have so much dirt on the Clintons that it's, it's unheard of. And they could probably put the Clintons away uh, probably with what they've got right now um, or at least make life very uncomfortable. Uh, in, and the next, uh, you know, 65 or whatever days of the U.S. election, very uncomfortable for the Clinton political machine. Uh, and that's been known for, for quite some time. There's, there's many other sort of uh, convenient coincidences uh, with regards to this. By the way, I, I think, well, via Sidney Blumenthal, one of uh, Hillary's surrogates, was also lobbying for Tony Blair to become president of the EU. Just to give you an idea of 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 what's uh, involved there, so now let's get to the crime syndicate. So there's some somewhat of a Camelot complex uh, with the Clintons, and we'll we'll just put this into perspective. I mean, you, we could do hours on this, and we we probably will do more hours in the next two months on this subject because it is it's kind of it makes your head spin as soon as you i mean a lot of the stuff is freely available online let's just put this into context who who is bill clinton bill clinton you know the 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 clinton foundation uh it 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 looks like some sort of a you know a do good organization globally and they're all proud of the work and so forth but um as we'll cover on the sunday wire this week uh, with Daddy Cherry, and we have in the past, you'll see that's not actually the case. Uh, and they only spend, they spend less than 10% of the billions of dollars they collect on actual projects. The rest goes on, quote, administration, which includes anything from security to private jets to living the high life and entertaining VIP clients in, in, in the most extravagant ways globally. So what is this uh, other than a way to sort of... Uh, I don't know, grease the wheels of the uh, the global syndicate. And you'll see there's there's donations back and forth. Uh, we could do a whole program just on the Clinton Foundation, who, who the donors and, and so forth. But what's interesting is Bill Clinton is a, is a president who perjured himself in front of the world, in front of the American people, more importantly, uh, during his uh, impeachment hearings. And he lied. Uh, just flat face, and this is interesting. And uh, sort of the liberal wings of the media would never want to hold him account for that. Obviously, they hang Richard Nick. They hang. They hung Richard Nixon for it, uh, for in memoriam, uh, for Watergate, uh, for lying about what seems to be trivial compared to what we're talking about here. Um, but Clinton purged himself. He said he, he denied having sex with uh, Monica Lewinsky. And, uh, of course, we know that not to be true. He's just doing it in the White House, uh, having a good old time. Why Hillary's probably cleaning it up, cleaning up the mess. Um, But he perjured himself, okay? That's the President of the United States. Now, you should ride off into the sunset at that point, open the library, and just kind of live a quiet life. But, no, they've set on an aggressive uh, path to build uh, a billion-dollar fortune, and a legacy for the Clinton family. They're wanting to position their daughter, Chelsea, uh, to m- probably move into politics um, within this next four years. Uh, 
uh, and especially if Hillary is elected president. Um, what has Chelsea Clinton done in terms of achievements? Uh, not a lot, although she's she's gotten landed jobs with uh, uh, various uh, investment hedge funds and Goldman Sachs uh, and NBC News. I don't know what she's actually done, uh, but she's managed to get all these jobs, and of course with the Clinton Foundation. So, um, so she's been basically anointed. Uh, it's the brand, it's the name, uh, it's the smile, it's the hair, it's the face. Uh, in terms of achievements, she's married to a hedge fund manager. Uh, his name is Mark uh, Mezvinsky, 38 years old, uh, former Goldman Sachs guy. And this is where it gets extremely inter- interesting. So we'll tell you what is the, how this syndicate works. The last thing that Bill Clinton did while he was president, the last thing he did, well, some of the last things he did was he pardoned quite a lot of criminals. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, this is a president, this is a guy who used his presidency to pardon his own brother, I believe, on drugs charges. And uh, I think less than a year after he's pardoned by Bill, Roger Clinton, his wayward half-brother, went and got done for a DUI. And uh, some other sort of charge as well. Interesting. So he, he used the presidency to pardon his own brothers, get clemency for his own brother. Amazing, right? So, but this 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 should tell you, you know, what the Clintons are about. That they're totally prepared to abuse their office, uh, any power that goes with that, um, to protect uh, basically criminals. There's another group of terrorists in 1999 who Bill Clinton pardoned. And uh, a lot of people aren't aware of the FALN. This is a uh, Puerto Rican paramilitary organization that set off 120 bombs in the United States, in New York, in Chicago. Uh, All these men were convicted of conspiracy, armed robbery, bomb-making, sedition, firearms and explosives trafficking. Nice guys. Bill Clinton pardoned all of them. Among many other people, by the way, this list is too long, other characters, but let me just talk about these terrorists, supposedly from Puerto Rico. And uh, what's interesting is the there's a lot of resistance against this at the time. And uh, Congress condemned Clinton for this in 99 on his way out, 95 to 2 in the Senate against, and 311 to 41 in the House. So the U.S. House Committee on Government Reform held an investigation on this. But Bill Clinton, because of the White House, the DOJ, Department of Justice, I don't know if that was Janet Reno who was in there at the time, I'm not sure, whoever the attorney, sorry, yeah, the attorney general was, prevented the FBI officials from testifying on this matter. Can you believe that? This was done. President Clinton cited executive privilege for his refusal to turn over Uh, a number of documents to Congress relating to the decision to offer clemency to all these terrorists. Wow. Wow. So here they are, Edmund Cortez, sentenced to 35 years, Escobar, 60 years, Jimenez, 90 years. Real real nice bunch. Um, And there's, the list goes on and on. You got people with bank fraud charges, I mean, amazing. Hillary Clinton's youngest brother, Tony Rodham, 
she's got a couple of brothers. They're kind of interesting. Uh, some of their acquaintances, the uh, the Gregories, who who got a pardon from Bill, Edgar and Vanna Joe Gregory, financial fraud, felony charges. Wow, that's so interesting, isn't it? And uh, the U.S. DOJ, well, uh, Rodham received the $107,000 from the Gregories for the pardons, according to this report, in the form of loans that were never repaid as part of a quid pro quo scheme. This is basically, um, I've got pages of these. Pages, Mark Rich, a a fugitive who fled the U.S., during his prosecution, was residing in Switzerland. Rich owed $48 million in taxes and was charged with 51 counts of fraud and uh, was pardoned by Bill Clinton, I guess. He was required to pay a $1 million fine and waive any use of the pardon as a defense against any future civil charges that were filed against him. Critics complain that Denise Eisenberg Rich, his former wife, had made substantial donations to both the Clinton Library and to Mrs. Clinton's Senate campaign in New York. Wow. According to Paul Volcker's independent investigation on the Iraq oil for food kickback schemes, Mark Rich was the middleman in the Iraq oil for food kickback scam. Mark Rich, who was pardoned by Bill Clinton, friend of Hillary's. Other oil deals in Iraq, 4 million barrels. This was during the sanctions regime, I guess, in the, in the 90s. It's before the, 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 the second Gulf War. Long time. Oh, my gosh. It's just endless. Wow. You know, it, it, for anyone else, it would be disgraceful. But somehow for the Clintons, it's, it's okay. Um, it does. It's, it's amazing. So, so Chelsea's... So anyway, all the pardons. This brings us back to Chelsea Clinton. So the last thing Bill Clinton does, he repeals the Glass-Steagall Act, which was put in place after the Great Depression, which separates high street banking, retail banking, from investment banking. It's the bulkhead that would stop the contagion of a full economic collapse. Bill Clinton removed that, his last act as president practically, beside all these incredible pardons of all these criminals all his friends uh, that he let off before he left office. So his parting gift to Wall Street was to open the gates of financial hell and total speculation paradise, uh, the likes of which the planet has never seen before. And that's what happened. And the rest is history. 2008, economic collapse, banker bailouts, Trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars, by the way, not just 750 billion, trillions uh, go to pay off all these Wall Street banks who started the collapse themselves. Uh, So the government felt the need to bail them out. One of the biggest recipients of this bailout in the TARP funds was Goldman Sachs. And uh, most notably, Lloyd Blankfein, head of Goldman Sachs at the time, uh, he's done very well out of this. And you'll see, so, so Bill Clinton gave Wall Street license to print fraudulent money and to speculate and basically to inflate the economy, cash in before it popped, and then get bailed out 
by the U.S. taxpayers, and and a lot of the bailout came. You know, it, technically, it's 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 borrowed again by bank. So they borrowed from the banks to bail out the banks, basically. So just lots of cash for the balance sheets of the banks, and the U.S. state, United States goes further into debt. Thank you, Goldman Sachs. So that's what Bill did. And so when Chelsea Clinton's husband, Mark, uh, started his Eagle Vale Partners hedge fund in 2011, uh, he's a former Goldman Sachs guy, of course. This is Chelsea Clinton's wonderful husband. And uh, one of his investors is Lloyd Blankfein, funny enough. Wow. And, and there's some other interesting names. Uh, the initial investors into Chelsea's husband's Mark's uh, hedge funds. And what happened last May? Last May, ooh, the bottom fell out of that one. So they started that one in 2011, and he managed to basically collapse this hedge fund this year. Chelsea Clinton's husband, Mark, and his colleagues from Goldman Sachs uh, shutter a $25 million hedge fund after losing all of their investors' money. But they still have a $10 million apartment in Manhattan. So at least Chelsea and her husband, Mark, uh, are not homeless. They still have their $10 million pad, even though all his investors lost all their money. That's interesting, isn't it? And how did they do this? Uh, shortly after Mark started the company, he set up Eagle Vale, a Hellenic opportunity, uh, a little interesting side project there to buy up, guess what, Greek debt and bank stock. Absolute garbage. Financial garbage. Worthless paper. And uh, the group collected $25 million from investors, uh, but it had been forced to shut down the hedge fund after losing 90% of the money. This guy's really smart. He's very talented. Eagle Vale's flagship fund currently manages $330 million uh, and is down uh, 1% this year. Okay. So that's interesting. So there's a lot of Goldman Sachs money uh, tied up in this. So Hillary gets a job at Goldman Sachs. I mean, you can go on and on. The more you dig on the Clintons, uh, the more of this you find. This is a little syndicate. So they're really just paying Bill back for the favor which he did, which is basically to destroy the U.S. economy by repealing Glass-Steagall. And I'll say this once again. If Donald Trump was really interested in winning the election, which I don't think I'm, I'm not convinced that he is, but we'll see. But if anyone in his campaign is not smart enough to seize on this one issue, that Bill Clinton is responsible for the economic collapse of 2008, single-handedly practically. You could even lay most of the blame right at his feet for repealing Glass-Steagall. And that, that how the Clintons, Hillary, and Bill have profited millions from Goldman Sachs who was a major recipient of the bailout funds. Uh, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, folks. If Donald Trump would seize on that, uh, he would that would be enough to gain five points in the polls. And there you go. Who else is involved in this little syndicate? Sting. Sting and Trudy Styler. So Mark Mavinsky, Mesvinsky started the company, set up a... Eagle Vale, Hellenic Opportunities to Buy Up Greek Stock, Trudy Styler, Bill Clinton. There they are all together. I don't know if they invested. Maybe they lost money. 
These people are amazing. Absolutely incredible. So it, it just goes around and around. Around and around. And uh, there's more. There's more. We could get uh, where there's smoke, there's fire, and there's plenty of fire in this story. But this, just, just to give you a taste of the level of corruption is unseen. So this, at the end of the day, uh, this to a large degree is, is what Julian Assange is probably looking at. Uh, he's looking at his own situation. Uh, he's looking at uh, all of this information he's got, WikiLeaks has in their hands, uh, all the stuff they put out. Um, and they're probably seeing what many people are saying, which is a completely out-of-control, corrupt system, uh, which is currently the media and the mainstream media and all these sort of oracles internationally, especially in the U.S., are, are lobbying and trying to promote uh, a candidate with, I mean, the the scale of corruption around the Clintons, it, it's as if they're the... If, the, if there's a global mafia, it seems like the Clintons are a major facilitator uh, and, in fact, you know, a banker of sorts or a sort of entry point for a lot of corruption. And uh, if you look at the case of Haiti uh, and you look at the, the, the Clintons' role there, the destruction of that country, and they'll claim that they've saved the, 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 the poor Haitian people. But when you look at it a little bit closer, you see the opposite. Watch the Sunday Wire. Uh, if you haven't already, that the, the interview with Daddy Cherry on Sunday uh, answers a lot of those questions. Um, you know, th th this is just almost too vast, and, but also too obvious. Um, and it's just amazing, and it's a wonder why uh, more journalists haven't, you know, seized upon it um, in any meaningful way. And that kind of goes to show you, you know, what the state of, of the media is right now. Uh, in many ways, and um, uh, unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. So we you know we might publish a few articles about this. Um, we'll see what happens uh, in the coming weeks. But there's just, there's no shortage of material uh, on this. But we just wanted to share that with you, and 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 for people to realize, if you're going to take away one thing, uh, you know, whatever you think about Julian Assange, whether he was raised in a cult in Australia, etc. Okay, if you look at what's going on now, study it very closely. Listen to what that man is saying in relation to what's happening right now, uh, politically and geopolitically in the world. And then you look at look at the information, take it on face value, and just consider the important point and position uh, that Assange and WikiLeaks are in right now, they could potentially swing uh, the biggest, most divisive, polarizing U.S. presidential election in, in modern history with the leak of information uh, over the coming weeks. That is a reality. Uh, it needs to be looked at, taken seriously, and considered. And... Uh, if you haven't read, I haven't read Julian Assange's book. Uh, a friend of mine recounted it to me. It sounded very interesting. I haven't read it myself. I heard it's very good. Um, is WikiLeaks a limited hangout? I don't know. I can't tell you. Um, you know, but 
what they released this summer resulted in five resignations from the Democratic National Committee, including the head. Uh, I'd say uh, that's it seems to be pretty serious. So that's what we're saying here. We're going to wrap this episode up, but I just want to thank everybody. Um, if you're a member's listening, uh, thank you for subscribing. Thanks for becoming a member. If you're a charter or lifetime member, I think we've got most of the uh, welcome packs out. Uh, we've got a few more. We need to ship out. Some new members came on board this week. Uh, do tell your friends uh, any level of support. We really appreciate it. We're going to work hard to try to get as many programs, new programs out and premium programs out for our members at 21wire.tv. We appreciate your support. I'm Patrick Henningsen. This is On the QT at 21wire.tv. See you next time. Bye.